It's been a long time. I shouldn't have left you, but resurrected from the grave to whoever, wherever, why ever you're listening, this is the Dudes Day Podcast, where we candidly talk to dudes about their unique interests and perspectives and get the lifestyle choices that come along with them. If you've heard of the hero's journey at all, this is essentially it. This is the dude's journey. And after a long hiatus, it's episode 16, Dudes in Floating, with our guest, David Connolly. Very excited to get back in the swing of things after some months of, well, a jam-packed summer, basically. But uh, we have a bunch, a bunch of podcasts lined up waiting to be launched out into the iTunes atmosphere. And this is the first of those. Uh, my guest, David Connolly, is the owner and proprietor of iFloat Spa down in Westport, Connecticut. And this episode is called Dudes and Floating. And for those of you unfamiliar with the term floating and how it's used in this context, basically it's a style of meditation. So there are these tanks called sensory deprivation tanks where you go in and it basically limits the sensory input that you'd normally be getting while you're meditating. So sound and light are eliminated. You enter a tank, float on some super buoyant water, and just mellow out and meditate. And David is the owner of this new sensation. Now, this is something we touched upon at, in an earlier episode with Bryce Rudeau. And now I decided to, hey, if people were interested in this process, in this new form of meditation, it'd be great to have uh, an expert on in the field. And if you want to learn about something that's really at the cutting edge, really at the forefront of mental clarity and mental health, um, this is it. Uh, David brings us along his journey um, from out of college and getting a, a government job all the way to now owning um, the iFloat Spa, as I said, in Westport. It's a wild journey. Um, he's very candid, very open, just like all our other guests, and just tells one hell of a story. I'm not really going to ruin it. I've been told not to do that from now on. I'm just going to let I'm just going to let the story unfold for the listeners, and I'll shut up and let David go. So, um, like I said, first of, of many to follow. Sorry if you've uh, been waiting for content the last few weeks, and I have not delivered, and, and that is a shame. But we're back at it. Here's David Connolly. Let's take it away. Is that I grew up in the Boston area, but I went to college in Southern California, okay. so uh, quite, quite a distance, yeah, quite a man. distance from yeah. That's a good jump. That's an adventurous jump for a 17, 18-year-old. Yeah, it was It was an adventurous jump. And when I finished college, I got a job working for this environmental consulting firm. I was an analyst doing a lot of work in the area of, of greenhouse gas emissions. And it was a great job. But at the time, what was happening was I didn't realize it, but I had a lot of stress and frustration. And my second year out of college, I developed chronic fatigue syndrome. I kept getting these sore throats, and and then I just started to get really tired. And I was very healthy, and I ate well, and I exercised, and I looked fine. And I would go to the doctors, and they'd say, there's nothing wrong with you. 
Yeah. And, you know, they were like, okay, your blood, your white blood cells are a little high. This and that, but they're like, there's nothing. We can't figure it out. And I thought I was losing my mind. So I started <laughs> to meditate and I, cause I didn't know what else to do. So and who, I had yeah, taken seemed, this. So no, no. So medicine isn't going to cure it cause they can't really figure out anything to prescribe. Right. Um, well you probably could have gotten prescriptions, but you rather heal yourself, uh, in some other way. So what turned you on to meditation? Um, where'd you, did you start reading about it? Did a friend do it? The, I had taken a, an afternoon seminar when I was in college, there was a Buddhist monk passing through and in college, <laughs> as you may recall, they're all, they're always just people coming through and it's like, learn this, learn that. And, and there was just this Friday afternoon. And I remember sitting there were probably like 50 people in the room and this guy taught us how to meditate. And at the time, I think it was my sophomore year in college, I found it so difficult to meditate. And even back in my early 20s, when I started to meditate, I could only sit for maybe five minutes at a time. Uh, A lot of people come into the Flow Center now and they comment on how calm I am and so forth. But I tell them how back then when I first started meditating, I would sweat from being still because I was that, that wound up inside. Uh, I tended to keep a lot of my tension tucked away in a lot of ways. But when I, when I started to meditate back then, it was really hard for me. And gradually what happened is I was able to build it up from five minutes to 10 minutes at a time to 15 minutes to 20 minutes. And I started doing it twice a day. How did you get the patience to know that like, okay, if I commit to this, that it's going to keep, I'll keep getting better at it. Like, why didn't you just give like, say, ah, screw it and just give up <laughs> at, that, at that point <laughs> when you were sweating, sweating profusely. <laughs> I think, sitting there. I think because, uh, that's, I guess, yeah, I guess that's not my, my nature to give up on something like that. And I think at some level I knew that that was the only thing that was going to make a difference. Okay. And what, what was um, like, you were just because, exhausted all the time. Were you just, were you having anxiety or panic attacks? Was every day at work? It was just a long? sense of exhaustion. Okay. I, all, what I could do is I could get to work and that was it. It's like, I'd wake up feeling like my body weighed two, three, 400 pounds. Um, and I would get to work and my job was pretty intense and then I would go home. And I used to, at the time, would go out or do this and that. And, but all I could really do was muster up the energy to, to, to do my job. And then I'd come home and uh, eat and meditate and then go to sleep. And then <laughs> wake up and meditate and then go to work and come home and do it again. And what happened was, over the course of that time, I really had to start slowing down. And on the weekends, I prior to that, I used to go out and I was new to the area and I was a little confused at the time because part of the part of what was going on for me too at the time was that I was I was I was coming out as a gay man and I had come out to my close friends but I hadn't come out to my family and I felt that was also a stress for me and as I began to slow down. Uh, different things were, were coming up for me, but but there were a lot of unconscious things that I had pushed down that I hadn't dealt with. And when I began to meditate and I began to just really slow my whole life down, I 
these things started to come up and started to get resolved. And about six months after meditating, things started to change. And at some point, the sickness just lifted almost like a fog. Like it just, it just, it just went away, just like a fog. How it, the sun burns it away uh, later on in the morning. Uh, it just, it just lifted, and I started to feel a lot better and have a lot more energy. And there was a good friend of mine who I used to work with out there who now lives in San Francisco, and she kind of saw me go through the whole thing. And at the end, I remember commenting to her how I felt so much more whole inside after the whole thing compared to before I had the sickness. Because before I had the sickness, I was trying to find a sense of happiness and peace in external things like going to parties and going out and partying. Yeah, I mean, and all kinds of stuff I think that's a very, not, not gonna, that's a very common, uh, it's a very common way people try to, to find solace or something like that. Right. You just, you kind of, yeah. you, uh, work for the weekend and then you f- just get away from it all. And then all of a sudden you're back exactly where it begins. It's like groundhog's day where you don't really remember what happened on the weekend, but you know, you just got to go back through it again the next week. Yeah, yeah, that was definitely what was going on, and and I think there was a part of me that was very much like, no, your 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 meaning is not going to come from outside, and goddamn it, you're going to learn this lesson really early on, and and so when it was all said and done, um, I felt very whole inside, and I had I had just moved to LA, you know, like a few years before that, and. I had come out. And so I kept thinking like, oh, there's a certain way in which I'm going to be in order to find happiness in, in, in my community in Los Angeles. And when all that six months, after those six months of meditating and stuff, all of a sudden I started to realize, you know what? No, the, the happiness is going to come from, from a different way than I thought. And it was around that time that I stumbled upon an advertisement for workshops and shamanism. Shamanism is... At the time, what I knew about it was that it was a form of spiritual-based healing. Uh, I had spent some time in the Amazon when I was in college because I studied abroad in Ecuador and did an environmental studies program there. And I also worked in the Amazon for a summer when I was in college. So I came across people that were considered shamans or healers, indigenous shamans. And I had felt a kind of a draw to them to some extent. I couldn't really explain why, uh, but like it's like a certain I type of energy knew. that they had, or the way of behavior. more of a curiosity. Okay, it was more of a curiosity of like, what are they about? And and I didn't spend too much time speaking with them, but I did spend a fair amount of time. I spent like two or three months in the Amazon, and I was around people who who were indigenous. And, and so I, I, in LA, I saw this advertisement and, and what was interesting about it was that it was an advertisement for workshops and shamanism, but it was for gay men. And it was interesting because again, at the time I, I had just come out and I was a little confused about like how I fit within that community because I really wasn't clicking with uh, what would be considered the West Hollywood scene, which was, again, a lot of like partying and stuff like yeah. that. <laughs> and so all of a sudden, I, yeah, I saw um, this advertisement and I said, you know what, let me, let me find out what this is about, something click. And so I started, I ended up taking these courses and they were pretty in-depth, actually. And I learned 
a lot about what could be considered what Carl Jung called the active imagination, which is slowing the mind down and going into an imaginative state of mind, like a slower meditative state of mind to explore what's going on within the unconscious part of a person's mind. And as I began to study about and learn more about myself through going on what they call these shamanic journeys using drumming, usually. And when they drum, the teacher teaches you how to slow your mind down and go into an imaginative, imaginative state where one can essentially talk to, like they call them power animals or spirit guides. And what these are are different facets of oneself. And as I began to do this kind of work and ceremonial work and different things, I started to be able to tap into an awareness within myself that that resulted in there being changes in my life. And I started uh, to really click with it. And the, the mentor who I worked with also taught me how to analyze dreams. And so I got really good at like writing my dreams, analyzing them and starting to realize and pay attention to the, the unconscious part of my mind. And I, I know th- I said I that a few times. I think that's the main, yeah, that's the, the paying attention to stuff like that. I think that's the main thing that a lot of people would overlook or even like, you know, I have in the past where um, none of this is tangible. And that I think that basically is the most difficult part for people to grasp about a lot of this. And for, for even my, like for you or I or anyone who's attempting this to um, actually not think you're crazy right? Your, your, your own self mm-hmm. at any point where you're just like, what, what you take a step back? You're like, what am I doing exactly? Because none of it's really, you know, it's not like you're bodybuilding or something like that. You're, you're kind of just sitting there and just working, um, your mind. So you want to talk about a little bit about like your thought process during this? And did you ever like, <laughs> ever doubting what the heck was going on? Absolutely. Yeah. And, and it's funny that you use the term bodybuilding because Increasingly, here at iFloat, I talk to people who who are sometimes like bodybuilders or like these physically tough people, and sometimes they come here and they they float or they take the classes that I teach, and they're just like, gee, they're like, holy crap, this is really tough. And I said, yeah, this is kind of like jujitsu for the mind. <laughs> you're, <laughs> you're strengthening your mind and and absolutely there there are there are times when I doubt it but what what what's important I think in any kind of work that people do on themselves is measuring its its impact and there was a guy who just went into float who's been taking some of the the classes that I teach here and he he said to me tonight he said you know the place where I'm noticing the differences in myself are in my relationships. He said, is that normal? And I laughed and I said, that's the only measure in your relationships. <laughs> and, and so I, I did notice that there were changes going on in me. And what was interesting was when I came out of college, I thought that the, the proper path for me was to go into something like what I did, which was, working at a consulting firm and probably going to get an MBA or master's in public policy, both all of which is like wonderful. But, but there was a part of me that was putting pressure on myself to do that. And I remember speaking you, with you a had friend's like, mother. Did you have and, these almost outer forces that you just thought you had to go that way? Like you weren't kind of following your, what you 
really what you there's always doubt but you just kind of went along with the path in a way yeah i suppose i did and i remember that this guy who taught me a lot about shamanism basically was doing work with me to get me to tap into what was appropriate for me rather than what I thought I should do. And what the, the jobs that I ended up doing in LA, including working at, at this consulting firm were amazing. And I learned so much, even things that I still use today and the, and the people that I worked with were great, but increasingly I realized that I needed to do something more creative. And, and eventually after working in LA for four years, I decided to go into the Peace Corps and it really was, through through this work uh, that I this work on my mind and on myself where I started to accept who I was in in different facets of my life start to to strengthen my relationships such as with my family coming out to my family different things and so I I cleared away some of the things going on in myself which freed up my energy to finally be like, okay, I am going to go into the Peace Corps because it was something that I considered doing uh, when I was finishing college, but I just wasn't ready to do it because of coming up on the cusp of coming out. I knew I needed to deal with that. And so starting this inner work and in, in looking at these, these shamanic journeys that I would go on and the dream analysis and the meditation started to give me a foundation to go into the Peace Corps. And I ended up going into Morocco and doing community development work in the High Atlas Mountains there. And definitely having that foundation of, of awareness within myself definitely helped that experience be really profound. Uh, because I had a place to stand within myself so that when I was with all these people who were not American, because when somebody goes into the Peace Corps, they, they give you training for a few months, but then you're just out there. And it's not all uh, peace, love, and happiness. You know, the people <laughs> there are like, who the hell are you? What are yeah. you doing here? Why <laughs> should I be talking to you to some extent? Yeah. And and they poke fun at you, and every single aspect of oneself gets pulled apart and poked at. And, uh, and so a person has to have kind of a thick skin and not take themselves so seriously. And having done work on myself really prepared me to be able to uh, to really have very – what I consider strong relationships with people uh, there. Were you, and, uh, were you looking for so, other, like, was your just awareness about other things? Were you less focused on like your fears and what changed mentally that, you know, you, David as 26, 27 could stand it and like be open to this experience versus the 22 year old um, graduating college? I think the biggest difference was a sense of being comfortable with who I was. There, there was just this deeper sense of, of who I was. And one of the tools that I used a lot when I was, was in the Peace Corps, and I still use it today, was, was uh, my dreams. Uh, most of the major decisions I've made in my adult life were through my, my work on my dreams. Uh, my brother jokes around with me, but whenever I make a decision or I do something that seems really strange uh, in terms of being unconventional, I remember my brother, he doesn't do it as much anymore because I guess he just assumes that it's the case, but he would, uh, he would laugh and say, let me guess. He'd say, let me guess you had a dream about this, didn't you? And I'd say, yeah, I had a dream. But I started to be able to to tap into an awareness of myself. And I think 
I mean, this is what, what just came up in my mind is, is just recognizing that there's a spiritual reality to reality, that our reality is not just physical, that there's an actual spiritual component to reality. And, and some people might say, what is he talking about? But I know that I've had, I have dreams and I look at them and I, I examine them and I make decisions based upon my dreams and they're, they're usually very spot on. And um, these are things that it's not so much I'm predicting the future, but I'm paying attention to something that's not so apparent, but comes through the dreams. And the dreams are coming through a deeper part of ourselves that we're usually not paying attention to. And so I, I developed an ability to, to look at all of that. And so there is a sense of a sense of being grounded in who I was, not just at a physical level, but at a spiritual level in the sense that I could sense that I was meant to be in the Peace Corps. And um, I remember yeah, walk, walk just in like feeling you, this sense of... Walking like you own the place type mentality, right? It's just exuding confidence, but you, you just believe it yourself. Yeah, there is a deep sense of belonging there. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that was, that was a big thing too. And, and even I remember before I went into the Peace Corps, you know, one of... My father has he just recently passed away, and back then i had I had been away for about eight years out in California, and I would come home to visit but before I went into the Peace Corps, I spent a few months at home with my family up in boston and again, there was this intuitive sense that i had i don 't know if it was through my dreams or just the sense that I had that it was important for me to go to Ireland. My parents are both from there, and I wanted to and I asked my dad to go with me. And we had never taken a trip like that, just the two of us, but it was this really great trip and this really great chance for us to just have this shared experience together as adults. And we went home and we stayed in our family home there and everything. But but I can think now, too, how by starting to do work on myself, I could also see the places where I was able to strengthen my relationships with pe- important people in my life, like my father, people who maybe who in the past I had, to some extent, alienated myself from and so by even i could think like even that trip and in, in, in strengthening my relationship with my parents and my family that's something a foundation that that i took with me to morocco and so that when i was far away from my family in this foreign place there was just this more solid sense of self <clears throat> so that i could could have a more solid relationships with the people there and i did i, I love the people there um, I still keep in touch with some of them, and uh, it was a really uh, powerful experience to, very, to be there. Very cool, um, man. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Well, so that's very, um, yeah, uh, very hero's journey esque so far, where you're like kind of pulled in a direction you don't really quite understand, and then you go through some darker times, and now you got to uh, you've experienced this stuff, right? You you have like this new knowledge to share to the world, so. After Morocco, like what what are you doing with this new purpose or or sense of self? Do you want to? I, I I assume that you feel compelled to share it in some way. Yeah, well, what was interesting about my experience in Morocco was that I was there for I think it was about fourteen or fifteen months, and I was supposed to be there for twenty four months. But what happened was the war in Iraq, and in two thousand three, it was in March or April of two thousand three. When the U.S. invaded Iraq, 
um, I was evacuated and the whole, they suspended our program. They put us uh, in hotels for like a week or so. Wow. And then we were sent back and there were just, there were some political tensions or maybe not political tensions. There was, there were just some things that some concerns they had. And so they suspended the program and sent us back. And that was, that was really hard for me because uh, I, I was anticipating going into international development work, but wasn't planning on coming back to the U.S. anytime soon. And I, all of a sudden, I was back in the U.S. and I, I went to my parents' house. And you now we had the option it was almost of like jumping a, right back was, into another program. The ending was like too premature that you just got plucked like out of nowhere, right? You just had a you're on course to to finish at a certain time, and then it's just an abrupt ending. Yeah, and it was it was painful because I really had close ties with the people there, and I had I had started getting projects going, and it was it was very painful. It was a painful experience coming back. I'm kind of a planner in a lot of ways. At least back then, I, I was more more so. <laughs> I always would plan things. I would always kind of set things out. And, and all of a sudden, I was thrust into this time where I didn't have a plan, <laughs> and it was very unsettling for me. Uh, and so I, I ended up taking it slow. I spent some time in Ireland. I even did some an immersion program learning my parents' native language, which is Gaelic. In Ireland, years ago, everybody spoke Gaelic or Irish, but the English destroyed the language, and so <laughs> there, aren't, there aren't many people... Uh, and they did. They actively actually destroyed the language. Yeah. That was part of their colonization. But where my parents come from, which are these islands off the coast of Galway, because they're more remote, the people there still speak uh, Gaelic or Irish as their native language. So uh, when I came back talking to my father about the Berbers and how we lived and everything, and we didn't have running water and we didn't have roads and rode donkeys to get our water and this and that, he he said that's exactly how they were raised. They didn't have any running water or electricity or anything like that. And so it was kind of an interesting uh, experience for me because in some ways I developed a deeper understanding of my parents. Yeah, and, uh, yeah you can, it's, it's amazing when you figure out like a backstory about your parents and why they behave the way that they do instead of yeah. just uh, – yeah, you like okay. Well, I still disagree with X, but I mean, I at least understand where you're coming from, so I won't get angry at it. Yeah, 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 exactly. And 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 then uh, there's a bunch of a bunch of stuff. But during that time, I was doing a lot of. I was looking at my dreams a lot, my night dreams. And what started to come up in my night dreams was going into teaching. And I never wanted to become a teacher. I thought, oh, who would want to become a teacher? That's awful. But my dreams kept coming up, and uh, my dreams kept coming up and saying, "No, you should go into teaching, and you should do this program in New York City, da 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 da, and you're gonna like it." And so I said, "You know what? What the hell?" So I, I came back from <laughs> Ireland. It's so true, <laughs> Dave. This sounds like <laughs> it's it's so incredible that you're just like, yeah. And then I took this dream and analyzed it, and now I think I'm gonna do this, and to do it with like, like. It seems like unwavering confidence. You must have like had to get reminded. Did the teaching dreams keep reoccurring? Is that why you like felt the yeah. force? Okay. Yeah, they they kept reoccurring. I mean, enough to the point where I, you know, when I when in my early twenties when I had this chronic fatigue syndrome, my what I learned from that was not to not to screw around with uh, 
with 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 paying attention to what's going on inside myself uh and if if that makes sense because my sense is as long as i as long as i'm paying attention to what's going on in me not in the conscious level but like unconsciously then everything's going to be okay and i've also learned that a lot of what i consciously think is the way things should be is not the way things should be <laughs> so so i've i've learned to just kind of put recognize that there are different parts of me and uh, and the dreams tend to point more at the authentic me than the part that I'm more conscious of. And so and so I uh, so I applied. I did this program down in New York City. I got a master's degree. I started teaching. And you know what? I remember even the first like week of being in New York City. I absolutely loved it. And I used to tell people like New York City must be an awful place because it's so like loud and dirty and expensive. <laughs> and, and, and within the first within the first week, I was like, "This is a great place," and I loved it. And I taught there for eight years. And what was interesting was, like, within the first week or two of being in New York, I was also asked to teach about the shamanic work that I know, like the dream work and the journey work. And so I started teaching that again, mostly in the gay community because that was my background. And I started a group there, and and it's still in existence. And I used to teach classes like in New York City and upstate New York. And what what was interesting was about, it probably was about six years ago, I think, at this point. But I was teaching this this class on, on shamanic journey work and dream work. And there were about 10 or 15 people, and it was a weekend class in upstate New York. And I remember just looking around, and I realized at the time that, first off, like I still had problems in my life and at the, at the time I was, I was in a relationship and there were problems. And I, I looked around and I said, you know, the tools that I'm teaching people are not sufficient to, to, to be making changes in their life because I still have patterns that aren't working well. So what am I doing? Like teaching people about this stuff. If I don't know what that, if I, if things aren't going as well as I'd like them I th- to, I, I, I am just taking a wild guess that a lot of teachers feel that way. <laughs> yeah. It's like, well, right. Any, anything where you're like, quote unquote the expert or supposed to yeah. have all this knowledge you kind of feel like a fraud at any point at the same, yeah. at the same time yeah so I, I i remember all of a sudden realizing like okay i need to take a break from all this so i took a sabbatical from that work and around that time i had a dream and in that dream <laughs> uh Funny it was enough, kind yeah. of it was a dream that that still carries a lot of weight but i was i was uh sitting uh out uh, in front of the house where I grew up and these people came down out of the forest and they were wearing carnival clothes and uh, they kind of pointed at me a few of them and they're like oh you know that's a shaman over there and and then one of them came over and one of them happened to be a teacher that I studied with certain shamanic journey work with and she said you know I'm trying something new and I said what are you doing and she's like I'm taking up fencing and and I said, that's pretty cool. And I woke up from the dream and I, I, got, I got a sense that that the message was that, that I'm still to continue this this inner work, but that the, the next thing is going to be something much more pointed, much more uh, kind of like digging into things. And a few months later, that woman from my dream actually sent me an email like in, in this real reality where she was studying <laughs> in, in this, with the in, guy. In the real world. Yeah. 
Yeah, Miss Reality. She was studying <laughs> with a guy down in Mexico whose whose book I had read a few months earlier, and she was writing me a, about it, and I realized, like, oh, that's the fencing. I could sense it right away. And so I emailed that guy, and I started doing work with him. And, and, and the work that I started to do with him was is the work that I currently teach about, which actually came out of the work of John Lilly. And John Lilly was the guy who invented floating. And the work that John Lilly elucidated was largely in this book called Programming and Metaprogramming in the Human Biocomputer. And it's based on this idea that the mind is like a computer. And we write instructions in our mind throughout our life. And the first three to four years are when we put in what we believe to be real. And I went through this process with him of like going through early memories, identifying a belief that never worked well and rewriting it. And it was very powerful because like the guy who went into float today, I started to notice changes in my relationships at a level that I had never, that I'd always wanted to make changes. Like I just started to notice uh, in my intimate relationship in particular, some differences that were really, really advantageous, like really good changes. And so when I went, started doing this work on like rewriting and programming and metaprogramming, I found it useful. And the guy who was teaching it to me, his name is John, he said, well, you might like floating. And I didn't know what floating was. And so I started to float in New York City. And I used to go uh, like pretty much like three or four times a week. I was sorry, a month. So I'd go pretty much once a week. And uh, at first I found it kind of difficult because I was still I was still trying to resolve things uh, in me. And like a lot of people come to my float center now. And, before we uh, – you know, sometimes, sometimes a float is really great. What's that? Yeah, before we, uh, before we get in that, do you want to explain like how did he – like what did he explain floating as? And do you want to explain floating, what the makeup of floating is, the description of floating? Yeah, Absolutely. I don't remember how he described it, but the way I describe it to people is like, for example, here at my business, iFloat in Connecticut, we have it set up almost kind of like a spa in a way, not quite, but it's a little bit like that. And each person gets a private suite. They have a private shower. They have a private chamber. So they come in, they shower, they cleanse themselves, and they step into a chamber. And the water level is just about a foot deep. It's not very deep. But the water is special. It has about 1,000 pounds of Epsom salt in it. Uh, it's skin temperature so that the, the mind can't quite tell the difference between where the body begins and ends. And there's no light generally. People turn off the light, and usually people float with no sound, like no music or anything. Now, the purpose of this is so that when they lie back, the, the 1,000 pounds of salt makes the solution more buoyant or more... Uh, the body is less dense than the water, so you float like you're a cork in the water. And in doing so, what happens is all of the stimuli or a lot of the stimuli that the nervous system and the brain is having to process, such as changes in temperature on the body, light, sound, even resisting gravity, that all gets greatly reduced in there. And so the, the circuitry that we have to put into processing a lot of external reality is turned down a lot so that the, the brain then goes into very, very deep meditative brainwave states. And at a very basic level, what, what it does is it slows people down. People usually float for an hour, although some people do longer, and it takes about 20 to 30 minutes for the brain to slow down and go into slower brainwave states, like deep meditative brainwave states, such as theta and delta brainwaves. But, so at the basic level, what that does is it helps people to relax and reduce stress, 
But at a, at a deeper level, what I use it for is to slow my mind down so that I can, I can make changes within myself. I can, I can identify things. I can sense things. And, and, and as a person spends more time floating or more time in that unique environment, what a person essentially is doing, and you, you brought up like the, the, like the physical training before, what we're doing when we're in that environment is we're training the, the mind to slow down and to to strengthen so that we can we can be in that slower state of mind in our day-to-day life and some people might think well i don't want to be in a slower state of mind and what i tell people <laughs> yeah. is that it's not about <laughs> it's not about it's not about slowing down like like i don't know like like drinking yeah. or like taking drugs it's not like it's not like hey man like it's all good it's it's more just that it's slowing down so that you can be actually faster. Because I, I used to float on 23rd Street in New York City, and a lot, when I tell people that, they say, oh, that must have been awful. And I say, no. I say, what happens is you go in and you slow down. And when I come out, I integrate the experience right away. So I'm, I'm moving fast on 23rd Street. Maybe I'm getting on the train. Maybe I'm going to the grocery store, whatever. But I'm, I'm slowed down. My mind is clear, but I'm still able to move really fast and do whatever I need to do. I'm just in a calmer state of mind. And so I always tell people that, like, you can float in the middle of the day and go back to work. And, in fact, sometimes I did that because eventually I, had my, I got my own float tank in New York City. And I had, I had it in my apartment across from what? where I worked. And if I ever had, like, you... a break in the middle of the day. How did yeah. you do that? How, how did I do that? How did you, how did you get a tank in your apartment? <laughs> Through uh, some heavy lifting and <laughs> creative things, and <laughs> is it like into your shower? Did you I like make your shower tank. into a into a tank? No, I had a pod. I had a pod in my apartment. Wild. Yeah, it was actually an old tank that was. It was a really strange float tank. They don't make them anymore, but it had these these hydraulics. So. If, when it was down, it looked like just this big box, and I actually I lived in a studio, so I slept on it. So I had this I had this uh, mattress that went on it. It looked just like a bed. And then if I took the mattress on off of it, uh, there was a hatch, and so you literally open up the hatch, and there's a float tank, and you just lift it up, and there were hydraulics, and it would go up, and it would become like a full float tank. And so I used to float in my apartment uh, in downtown Brooklyn. Oh, that's so cool. Um, and what were you doing during your – this is off of teaching? No, I was still teaching. I was uh, – in the eight years prior to opening up my flotation center in Connecticut, I was a high school science teacher in New York City. And uh, I was – I eventually – I had always been teaching courses on the shamanic work and the dream work. Eventually, I started teaching courses on the work of programming and metaprogramming and John Lilly's work. And – so I, I would teach that stuff. That was all like a hobby, essentially, like the the, the programming work, and your, I used to do that like at night on the weekends. Your, your side hustle. My, yeah, exactly. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. And uh, I was uh, I was a programming floating hustler in New York City. A <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> uh, colleague of mine who teaches courses with me on this work she offered to be an investor and in a way i I had had a dream back that summer when i was in korea that 
where these two people uh, who actually happened to be this investor and her husband who had passed away that previous spring, who was a good friend of mine, they were standing, they were standing, I was standing on the, at, looking at a river and I was on the porch and there was a river in front of me and I was looking for my backpack and um, all of a sudden I looked up and they were standing above me, like on the porch above and I could see them and they didn't say anything, but they kind of just indicated like your backpack is right in front of you and and I thought wow it's my backpack and I and it was a north face backpack that's what I always used to used to have uh my little backpack but I kind of like woke up from that dream and I thought you know it seems like uh there's something about like the river is flowing north and and I kind of was like well okay maybe that's the case I don't know but I came back from the trip and I was talking to some of my colleagues in the work that I teach and and this woman was like, I'd like to invest in you. Why don't you open up a float center? And and then uh, my partner at the time was like, I want to do it with you. And we discussed it. And I was living in New York City, and he was up in Boston. And I'm from Boston, and my brother does construction up there. So I thought, we thought, you know what? Why don't we open it up in Boston, and, and we which, could – Which would know, have been nice. Have I, connections could, and, I could be floating there right now instead of having to come down to Connecticut. But, you could be, yeah, you could be doing lots of <laughs> – yeah. But what was interesting was uh, shortly after that, a few, like a few weeks after we started to kind of make this more real and we started to discuss real estate in Boston and stuff, I was floating one night in my apartment. And all of a sudden, in my flood session, it was like this, this grief just started to come through me and my eyes watered up. And it was this grief around leaving my community in New York City, leaving my career, leaving the school that I taught at, because I was very passionate about what I did there and the teaching and my community and different facets of my community. And this was November. I wasn't going to be leaving until at least June. So I, I was like, where is this coming from? And then when that kind of like processed through me, then there was this sense of this, this voice, which was my own voice, but it, there was just this knowing that I should tell my school the next day of my plans and so so i just did and i i went in the next day and i and it was a big thing for me to do but i told my principal assistant principal and the teachers i worked with and and i knew that by saying that that it was going to it was just going to be that i was going to be leaving yeah and, well, you, um, well you didn't like just leave it as something like a pipe dream you just uh you put it out in the open. Yeah, I, I made it real. And uh, and what was interesting was I think it was the next day, my partner at the time, uh, he's no longer involved in the business, but he in the float center. But he he emailed me. He's like, hey, he's like, you know, there's a float center in uh, Connecticut. And I thought, oh, that's kind of interesting. And we looked at it and and it was a four float tank center. We were going to be we had planned on building a four float tank center. And at the time, we didn't realize it, but there were only three in the entire United States. There was one in Connecticut, one in Oregon, and one in Arizona. And so I thought, <laughs> I thought, well, that's quite the niche market. Yeah. yeah, quite the niche market. So we went up a few days later, and we were calling the place. Nobody was returning our call. Nobody was returning our emails. So we went up there because we wanted to just float there and just kind of get a sense of the place and like look at how they built it out because we were going to be building our own. And we went up, it was a Saturday, nobody was there. And then this woman next door who, who has a little, little salon, uh, was like, who are you? And we explained that we were going to be opening up a similar center. And so she, she directed us to the, the guy downstairs who owns a deli and owns the whole building. 
and where the float center is located. Yeah. And so he, he basically told us like, look, uh, the guy who built this float center g- gave it up recently. He just, he just doesn't want to do it anymore. And actually in two days, it's going to be demolished. They're going to start demolishing it. And so he said, but you know, I could call him and maybe he would sell it to you. And so wow. he did. And, uh, two days later, so that was the Monday we put a down payment on it. And then three weeks later, it was a done deal. You know, lots of lawyers and this and finance and that. And, and, uh, so three weeks later, we, we owned it under a different legal entity. And then two weeks after that, which was the first of like first week of January, what we year? Op- this was in 2012. Uh, we opened it part-time we both had full-time jobs in other states and <laughs> i would drive here after after teaching all day in new york city and float people at night and uh my students in new york city were, were concerned because i was drinking red bull and i remember one of my students being like mr david like red bull is not good for you and i said i know but this is just what i have to do right now <laughs> <laughs> and so, and so I, uh, I was running it and it was very unsustainable. And so come, I think it was, was it February? I think I realized that something had to give. And so I told my school, I said, you know, I, I can't, I have to take an early leave. I can't, uh, I can't sustain, um, this and, and the business has to, I have to, run the business because it's my business. Right. And a lot, yeah, I have a lot, of, a lot of money. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, and it's funny because it just worked out, uh, really well. I, I ended up getting an amazing teacher to replace me and it all just worked out like perfectly. And so I was able to make the transition much more quickly. And then, and then it was just, you know, it was just, uh, all of a sudden here I was living in suburban Connecticut <laughs> from downtown Brooklyn to Westport, Connecticut, uh, from being a New York City high school science teacher to being an entrepreneur, business owner, float facilitator, and teaching the courses that I did all full time. And it took a little bit of time to get in the swing of it, but it's been really an amazing experience uh, providing this space for people to slow down and to start to to, to go within. And, uh, I get, I get people from all walks of life coming here. I get, I get teens, I get more and more like young people coming here who are just experiencing so much stress and anxiety. And I have a lot of compassion for them. I tell them, I say, you know, I wish, I wish I had a place like this to come to when I was your age, because it would have saved me, uh, maybe getting the chronic fatigue syndrome. Um, because I talk to a lot of kids about the sources of their stress and anxiety after they float and, and it helps them to start to look at it. So maybe it can kind of reduce, you know, them from having to go through something like I that. I mean, so. the, the floating's great. And obviously that's, that's what gets all the, uh, the thoughts going, but I love that, that like kind of just grabbing a like cup of tea or something afterwards and everybody meets up in that room mm-hmm. and, and you just end up like the, the thing about like having different people at the same time slot and they end up in the same room at the end um, and just discussing stuff. Like I've met people where the, like um, her husband was dying of cancer and didn't know how long it would, you know, that person had to live and that's what she was dealing with. Or this, this guy had a collapsed lung and had a, 
drop out of college two or three times and was way behind schedule from what he wanted to do. Just like the amazing stuff where people are just kind of letting their problems rise to the surface, realize that it's not a huge deal. Mm-hmm. Or it, I mean, it, it's a perceived huge deal, but they have the capacity to deal with it. Yeah. Um, and, and, and then to share it openly with everyone, like just strangers, um, is such a wild thing, um, over there. So, um, yeah, that's what, that's what, I mean, I enjoy that the most. It's, um, it's pretty remarkable stuff. So like, yeah, if you want to give me, um, I guess the last few things would be, um, just, yeah, a little more about like kind of who goes there. Do people go there for creative process? Like did people walk in with maybe a thought in mind that or a problem that they want to deal with, or is it better to just have an open mind and see where, where your kind of float takes you? And then also where is this industry going? Cause it seems like, I mean, you're one of, th- <laughs> you were one of three at the time when you bought it. So are there other float tank, um, facilities opening up and how is this catching on who are the really the big names um kind of pushing this this meditative approach the in terms of like why people come here the the biggest reason is relaxation and stress reduction that's that's the biggest thing for sure and that's a huge problem in today's world there was a guy at the float conference last year, there's a float conference that happens every August in Portland, Oregon. And people who are enthusiastic about floating, mostly like people who own float centers go, but there was a professor from Caltech who's like a psychobiology professor. He talked about how something between 30 to 50 million Americans have chronic anxiety disorder. And that's a lot of people. And I don't think yeah. that it's, yeah, it's a lot of people. <laughs> right. And I don't think it's something that is just genetic, like, oh, I'm genetically predisposed to it. Mm-hmm. From what I understand about the mind and what I teach people about the mind is that a lot of it has to do with beliefs that people form early in life that never quite matched reality. And so, I mean, most of what we believe from early in life does match reality, but there are some things that don't. So right. what well, floating helps people do is help to start them to start to slow down enough to actually be like, oh, okay, I, to start to think differently, but at the unconscious level. And, uh, but stress is, is, is a, a lot huge of, problem. Is a lot of that about like, say like somebody's overweight. It's like, well, I'm o- overweight and that's how it's going to be. I've always been that way. I can be that way forever, but. No, you have the capacity within yourself to change that, um, but your belief from like when you were little is that okay, I'm like ugly or fat or I'm dumb or I don't, you know, whatever the the very general overarching label um, is. Yep. Yeah. Exactly. But and people have to slow down in order to be able to deal with those kinds of things. And what the floating does is it just takes the edge off. So again, some people are just coming just for the stress reduction and just going in there and floating really help people to relax and reduce stress. And sometimes it's very blissful in there. Sometimes it's, it's, it can be uncomfortable, but when they come out, they're in a better state of mind. But then other people come for, for reasons of creativity, like writers and people like that. And then there are also a lot of people who come for the personal growth and exploration part of it, which is where they're just, they're just really trying to figure things out for themselves, trying to improve themselves, improve their relationships uh, so it's, it's, I'd say it's like half just basic stress reduction, half people who are, uh, really in the personal growth arena. And then some folks that are coming just for, for the creativity. And then there was also a set of people who come for chronic pain problems, like things like fibromyalgia and back pain, because the, 
the floating helps tremendously with that, both from a physiological standpoint in terms of the absorption of the magnesium and the, the pseudo-anti-gravity effect of the water, but the, the, the reduction in mental stress plays a huge role in the reduction of the chronic pain for people. So those are the different reasons. And then in terms of like the, the big players in the float world, uh, definitely the folks that put on the float conference, those are the folks out in Oregon from float on they're, they're definitely very uh, enthusiastic and, and influential in terms of making things happen in the float community. And then there's, there's a, like a lot of growth taking place in the, mostly in the United States, but also internationally, a lot of plate flow places that are, that are popping up. And uh, one of the things that I talk to people about who are running flow centers is the classes that I teach on programming, metaprogramming. I really would like to have the people running flow centers to have that kind of training so that if somebody, for example, like you talked about is coming in and they have cancer and they're dealing with a lot of grief, that a person, the facilitator who's running the center or just kind of running things has done the work on themselves where they can, they're okay like standing there with somebody who's going through that kind of grief. Uh, they're okay standing there with somebody who's dealing with some pretty intense stuff in their life as well as just kind of hanging out with people who are there just for the basic stress reduction because when somebody comes into float, I mean, one of the things that I've learned, learned through floating is that we don't really know what's going to happen from moment to moment. And we might think it's okay, but like I remember there was, there were some young guys that came last year and they had never floated before. And like they all floated at the same time and they came out and they were kind of awestruck by what happened in their float session. I mean, it was, it was way more profound than they realized it was going to be. And so I was just there to kind of just be like, all right, you know, let me just kind of give you a little bit of a framework so that you can kind of understand a little bit about why your experience was so profound because it was a little almost troubling to them to yeah. some extent. You know, one guy like remembered like someone from his family who had passed away and this and that. And, and I'm just like, all right, well, you, you know, and, and so I see it as my job to kind of just help people unload that a little bit. So when they walk out of their, uh, you know, if, if there is any kind of tension around those things that they can kind of resolve them. And then, then, then the experience is more complete. Um, but clearly like you had mentioned this before, Joe Rogan is a huge enthusiast yeah. for the floating. I mean, industry. That's, that's how I, I just started Googling and there's, there was shady websites, but that didn't deter me. And then, <laughs> and then finally yeah. I was like, Oh, well this iFloat looks legit. Let me, uh, and luckily <laughs> I had a buddy who's kind of into, Exper experimenting with stuff like this and and um so we both went um i think for the first time like a year and a half ago so it was probably like you were relatively new still mm -hmm. um but yeah just had a uh really good experience and probably been like a dozen times since then so yeah joe rogan was definitely the <laughs> the influence and even when i that kid with the collapsed lung um that uh that i was talking to he uh, he was basically any 20 or 30 something that goes that's just like a normal guy like probably got turned on by joe rogan 
uh, yeah. <laughs> do it at some point. Yeah, I, I'll have to give him, if he ever stops it, I'll have to give him at least one free float for yeah. all the referrals. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Amen to that. <laughs> yeah, not that he needs it because he has his own, but that's right. okay. Right, but, yeah, yeah um, he has his own tank. Yeah, but yeah, so he's like the main influencer. And, but I think that the, the, the community, I think, is going to be evolving and changing and, and, uh, there are people, flow centers who do the work that I do and we're forming an association, you know, so people who are interested in, in that aspect of, of integrating the work on programming and meta programming with the flow centers, people have a place to do that. And, but, uh, but it's growing and there's just an increased interest. And I do think that people like Joe Rogan have had a big influence in that, in that area, because it's really just about like building bridges in people's minds for them to be okay with right. slowing down and actually dealing with themselves. And and it's almost like people need someone that they respect to say, listen, like it's, a, it's, it's not only is it, not only is it not okay, it, not only is it okay for you to, to slow down and deal with yourself, it's, it's vital for you to slow down and deal with yourself, you know? And, and I, I get a sense that, that Joe Rogan kind of emphasizes that because Absolutely. he, he talks about how he uses it to, to grow as a person and how important that is for him in many different ways. And, and that's true for all of us. And, uh, the more we can do that, the better our lives will be. And then that makes our communities, our families and, and everything just work better. Preach so. Dave. Preach. That's right. Preach. Yeah. It. Yeah, <laughs> awesome. Yeah. And hopefully like, like I said, I mean, like we're, we're going to run the gamut on the, on the topics we cover, uh, on this podcast and on our site and stuff, but this is definitely, I think, essential. And the the less, the more like, per, you know, perceived dudeish, manly guys that can get into this stuff, um, that it kind of opens the door for for other people that have a stigma about it. So um, yeah, hopefully, yeah. Uh, hopefully that's good. But yeah, man, uh, yeah. So feel free to. Uh, um, I always ask if anybody has anything to plug, obviously I float, but maybe the, the classes and, and other stuff that, uh, that you do over in West. Yeah. Park. You can read about those that are on my website, ifloatspa.net. And, and there's also, I do a podcast. I just usually have like one person a month, but I have a podcast called I float radio. And so people who are interested in floating can, can listen to those because part of the reason I do it is to give people a sense of the different experiences people are having with floating and how beneficial it is. So, um, but that's pretty much it. Hell yeah, man. That's awesome. Cool. That this was awesome. This was great. Well, well great. Well, thanks for, thanks for having me on, on your show. Oh, thanks. Thanks for joining, man.